All right. Does this excite you? Or does it scare you? What about this? I mean, what do you see? How about if I change colors? Blue, green, yellow, red, black. Did that change what you saw? Think about the emotions and the feelings as those colors flash before you. What, what was your initial thought? What if I handed you a blank sheet of paper? or pulled up a blank document on a computer screen? What if I handed you a $100 bill and said you had to spend it in the next three hours? Or if I was able to magically clear your schedule for one whole day where you had absolutely no responsibilities, could do anything you want, went, go anywhere you want. Do you already know what you'd do? Or would you have to think about it? And if you have to think about it, how long would it take you to think about it? I especially that I gave you a $100 bill and you only got three hours to spend it. You know, some people love the freedom of a blank page or a document. They love to wake up and know that they have a day to do whatever they want. Others, others are a little bit scared by that prospect. Our psalm today is a prayer. Teach me to number my days aright, O Lord, that I may gain a heart of wisdom. I prayed that psalm every day at the beginning of the pandemic. So what do you need to hear today? What is not present in your life, in your community, in your world that you think you desperately need? What have you been longing for? I went for a walk the other night, and by the way, on our street, if I walk far enough, there's a place where there's nothing but empty fields on one side, and a couple of the street lights are burned out. And so if you stand there and you look over toward the Waianae Mountains, the stars are just absolutely amazing. Now, Nancy, she can name the constellations and show me all the different stars. Me, I just know two. I know the Big Dipper and I know the Seven Sisters. Now, for some reason that night, as I looked up at the stars, I realized some of them weren't there anymore. They were no longer stars. They did whatever stars do when they die. But it's going to take hundreds or thousands of years before I know that they died and I'm not going to be around anymore. But you know, if we were staring at that one star, when all of those light years passed, it would simply wink out of existence as though it never existed. And unless you happen to have named that star after someone through starregister.org, you probably wouldn't care. And if you did name that star, you might want a refund. Or you might want to name another star. Or if that person and you are no longer friends, then you might smile and that it burned out and say, serves them right. I think one of the reasons I love to stargaze is because it is completely and totally out of my control. There's nothing I can do except watch. It's like sitting at the beach and watching all the waves roll in. There is a tranquility and a peace because for the moment, you have no responsibilities. It also teaches me something. Since I believe in the God who created the heavens and the earth, who knows all the stars by name, who keeps the universe in balance, I'm pretty sure I can trust him. If he can handle all that, I can trust him with my life and my problems. Staring into the night sky allows us to pause and reflect on something far bigger than us, or a pandemic, or wars, or rumors of wars, or any of the other things that are on the headlines lately. And if we can see beyond the stars and constellations to the God who created it all, we can also cry out to him and pray that, God, you would teach me to number my days aright, that I might gain a heart of wisdom. Our longing of faith is not about pondering the unponderable. It's about getting through this day or this week, or to be honest, sometimes just the next 10 minutes. So how do we hang on to faith in life and keep our hope up? 
Well, to be honest, it's all about community. Faith is not a solo sport. To be honest, neither is life. You know, if you remember back when all this started, there were all those memes about introverts who finally said, we're coming into our kingdom. Thank you. Well, guess what? Some recent studies have discovered a lot of introverts discovered just how much they relied on even accidental community. And some of them began longing for the noises and the crowds because they need to have their balance restored. When I'm with a family or an individual that's going through really tough times, you know, it's not uncommon for somebody to say, you know, I, I, just, I just don't see how people can do or go through this without God. But what they often really mean is, I, I don't see how people can do this without a community of faith through which God's presence is made known. You know, in a world that can make it hard to hold on to anything, let alone faith, we discover a God who knew what we were going to be facing. He knew our life would make it hard for us to see Him at times. And He made sure that we had each other. But you know, we are not enough unless the purpose of our one anotherness is to remind each other of Jesus. The book of Hebrews is unique. We aren't totally sure who wrote it, although a lot of us think that Paul dictated it to probably either Barnabas or Luke. And that accounts for the clearly Pauline theology, but also the difference in uh, grammatical styling and writing. Anyway, Hebrews pushes the following themes in response to the persecution, the violence, and the uncertainty that the church of that day was facing. See, Hebrews said, mutual love, hospitality towards strangers, freedom from the love of money, doing good, sharing with one another, confessing your faith with more than just words, and praising God loudly and clearly and consistently. Hebrews echoes the speech of the president in the movie Independence Day just before they go into battle against the aliens when he says, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. Hebrews says it is in such times as these, the ones we're living in, but to be honest, the ones of all times, because let's face it, there's always something that's pushing us to the very edge. That faith becomes so important especially when it would be so much easier just to fade into isolation outside a community. As Jesus followers, we depend on the promise that Jesus made in the waters of baptism and that he keeps making in the bread and the wine of Holy Communion. You know, this is our sacramental theology, and it's bigger than we are. It's bigger than any of our problems. In fact, it's bigger than all of our problems combined. It would be easy to say that Jesus shows up in church for us every Sunday. That's not totally true. Jesus shows up every minute of every day in every one of our lives. I mean, it's not just for an hour or two on Sunday mornings. It's just that more often than not, he shows up through his people, which is why we are called the body of Christ. And it's why we have to remind each other that Jesus didn't say, I'm going to show up and fix your problems, but rather I'm going to surround you with people. And together you're going to get through this. Oh, and when they show up, they are not superheroes with unlimited power or billionaires that'll just write a check to fix everything. They are just as frail and hurting and besieged by problems as you are, but they bring hope and somebody that we can lean on. But there is something that must be clarified. For the community of faith to respond, the community of hope, there must be an investment, an all-in attitude, not just by a few, but by everyone. We often have people show up asking for money. Oh, and by the way, it's usually, you know, my rent, my electric bill, whatever, is due tomorrow. I've already put it off three times, and today I decided I better do something. Grandma told them if they ever needed anything, they could go to church. 
Problems is these people don't have a church, never have. They've been outside the church for most of their life. Well, ever since grandma died, they're angry when the church isn't there when they needed it because we say, I'm sorry, but I can't give you $3,000 for your rent. I, I can't buy you a new car, you know? And any encouragement for them to find a church and get active, they say, well, it's too late for that. I need it right now. You see, any possibility of them being part of a community that, by the way, probably could have helped them, falls on deaf ears. See, it's not that we don't want to help, but money isn't what they really need. You see, like most of us, if you bail me out and help me fix something without fixing the predicament that got me into it, that is probably, by the way, something that I keep doing over and over again, then you're going to have to keep bailing me out over and over again. And we develop this codependent relationship. I need you to fix everything that I mess up, and you need to be needed, and we self-destruct together. Teach me to number my days aright, O Lord, that I may gain a heart of wisdom. You know, one of my grandmas, she was very organized, and she was very precise, and she had very, very distinct, clear boundaries. My other grandma was in, well, she's my example and definition of what mercy and grace is. If I didn't do my homework, one of them would have said, well, I told you to do it, and now you're going to get what you deserve. The other would say, oh, that's too bad. Do you want a cookie? Guess which one I wanted to be around when I didn't do the things that I was supposed to do. One wanted to teach me so that I wouldn't make the same mistake again. The other just loved me the way that I was, even if sometimes that wasn't so healthy. Fortunately, I found a balance between them, which allowed me to see both the necessity of both and instead of the either or. I suppose what taught me to appreciate both grandmothers was Holy Week. Yeah, I know it sounds strange. For from the day I became a Lutheran, which was when I was in junior high school, I had to go to Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, help decorate the church on Saturday, and then go to both of the Easter services. Now, I didn't mind Easter. It was loud and fun and exciting, and we got to shout, He is risen! Alleluia! Oh, and don't forget the Easter breakfast with all that bacon and all the wonderful other things. Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday? Not so much. They were dark and quiet, and there was no food, unless you count after I was confirmed and got to take communion. You know, over the past weeks, Jesus has shared with the disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, die, but then on the third day, he's going to rise again, all of which are straight out of Isaiah 53. In the most glaring instance, Peter rejects Jesus' fulfilling of the prophecy, and he says, may it never be so. Peter and I share a lot of things. This is one of them. I'm always looking for a shortcut, a way to avoid the pain or the long-winded sermons or the learning curve so that I can just jump straight into perfection. Like Peter, I tend to say, you know, I know what the Bible says, and I know why it says it, but there has to be another way, so let's get creative. I want God to put before me and you and the church a blank sheet of paper, a blank document on our computer. And let us dream up how we can be saved without having to go through the whole Good Friday death on a cross, suffering and guilt thing. I mean, let's face it, we're creative people. And we have access to TikTok, Pinterest, and the Disney Channel superhero movies. I mean, all things are possible with those, aren't they? The part I'm missing is, for there to be a resurrection, there must first be a death. And if I do not die to self, to rebellion, to pain, to this world... I can never be resurrected. And as long as I drag that old self with all of its limitations, hurts, hang-ups, and losses around, I'm never going to be able to go where my heart truly needs to go. 
If I stand with Peter, daring Jesus and challenging him to find another way to get saved, a less painful way, a way that does not require sacrifice, where do you think that's going to lead me? The church does not get to choose how God saves us. And why we spend so much of our time rethinking Good Friday and the sufferings of Jesus and all of his commands, I don't know. Oh, yes, I do. Because even though I'm baptized, and even though you are baptized, and God has made us new creations, the old self, with all of its sufferings, is hanging on to us with everything at hand it has in hopes of killing us. And that is why we desperately need the promise of the resurrection. We can't just be mostly dead. Rising again, by definition, requires death, and death, in most cases, is preceded by pain and suffering. If Jesus had just told us to take up our cross without him dying and rising again, none of us would have listened to him. I know Jesus says that the cross leads to change, but one of my favorite sayings is, you know, change is good, but you go first. And so Jesus does. He endures the world's disbelief. He walks among the dead and the dying and the suffering and the lost. And he holds them and he forgives them and he loves them and he brings them back to life. And then he gives them hope. And then he stands before the government, refuses to call upon the legions of angels that wouldn't have even worked up a sweat and made, you know, about two seconds worth of work for all the armies that Rome had and the government that thought they were so powerful. Instead, Jesus bowed his head, not in defeat, but out of love, and he let them kill him. But not without winking at his followers, with the hope that they would remember the promise that he made, that three days later he would rise again. Picking up our cross is still scary, because we've only got Jesus' word for it that something good is going to happen on the other side. And few of us are excited about pain and suffering. But Jesus was honest with us. He was honest about what the cross stands for and what it requires and where it leads. And you know what? That causes that creative part of me, that the little part in the back of my brain, to get curious about what it's going to be like on the other side of the cross. And what does this free us up to do? See, if we don't need to recreate or reimagine how God should save us, I want you to think about the possibilities. Teach us to number our days aright, O Lord, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Jesus pulls out some blank paper, opens up a blank document on our computer, and he says, go ahead, create, dream, think, love. And to be honest, it doesn't matter how many days we have left, because this life might end, but it's just going to start up again a microsecond later on the other side of death in heaven. So take out a piece of paper this afternoon. Open up a blank page on your, create, on your computer. Take a few dollars out of the bank. Clear a full day on your calendar. Dream, create, live. You are more special than you know. And by the way, we, we the community of faith, we the world, we need you. We really need you. And we need you to be the best you that you can be. And you don't have to start off perfect. Even if right now all you got is 16 crayons and an antiquated word processor, use whatever you have. Your life is precious. God handed it back to you so that you could live it without worrying about well, what if this or what if that or how about. See, along the way, you'll discover new colors and have new thoughts and you're going to be inspired to create. And as you do, your heart will grow in wisdom. And by the way, wisdom, it leads to hope. Eventually, you'll even stop numbering the days because you can't count to infinity. And since the possibilities are endless, why bother wasting your time counting when every day is a new chance to live and to create and to be a unique and well, unreproducible miracle of God. 
See, it's far better to imagine and dream and wonder and live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.